to want to rebel. So if you've ever been in a park, just imagine, right, you're, you're, going, you're walking down the path and there's a bench covered in, you know, paint and dirt and mud and bird poop and just all the stuff, right? You think, I would never want to sit on that. But then the next day you come through, same bench, and there's a sign that says, do not sit. It doesn't matter how much mud and bird poop and stuff is on it. Like, well, I'm sitting on that bench, right? It, someone tells you not to do something, and we just are like, immediately, that's the thing we want to do more than anything else. Um, we, are, we have become masters of also trying to follow the letter of the law while missing the spirit of it. So this just happened yesterday, and it was hilarious, and Jennifer and I... We, you know, it's 10 o'clock, it's nice and cool outside still, so we're like, okay, kids, you're, you're all going outside, we send them all outside to go play, um, and so Micaiah grabs his book and goes out onto the deck and sits inside his tent, so he follows the letter, like, he goes out, he did, he went outside, he did what we told him to do, and yet somehow he found a way to be inside, outside, so he follows the letter of the law, but he missed the spirit of the law, and that's, that tends to be how we are. We can, to some degree, follow the rules, but most of the time, even when we follow the rules, even if we look at the law and we're able to follow little bits of it at certain points, our heart is generally not in it. And so Paul is telling us, look, the law is not what saves us, but it is faith that saves us. So just be ready. We're going to flip back to Genesis and a few different times. We're going to read some big chunks out of Genesis um, to help us to understand, because this chapter is mainly about Abraham, it's mainly about his faith, it's mainly about um, the righteousness that he has because of his belief, and we want to go look at that stuff. Um, so the first thing we see here is that Abraham is justified by his faith. Now, if we had been justified by our works, and Paul makes a very clear statement, right? if we were justified by our works, we, we could boast. We would have no need for Jesus. There would be no need for his death or resurrection or his sacrifice or his perfect life. We would just be trusting in ourselves. And Paul tells us that's not how it works. And not only that, not only is it that's not how it works for you and I, we're not boasting in ourselves, but that has never been how it worked. Even Abraham, he was saved because he believed God. He was named righteous because of that. So let's go back. Let's look at Genesis chapter 12. Let's look at this faith that he has. This is probably a familiar chapter for you. This is right when we meet him. So right here, I mean, he's still being called Abram, right? He hasn't had his name changed by the Lord. So starting in verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That verse is really important. Let me read it again, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God makes that statement to him, right? Keep that in your mind, because we're going to see how quickly Abraham forgets. Right. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions, 
that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran and they set out to the land of Canaan. When they came up to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Moreh. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So we're still doing okay. He's still fairly faithful. Now here comes um, Abram's shining moment, right? Now there was a famine in the land, and so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a, a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her from my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Oof, that's pretty rough. God makes a promise to Abram, and he says, look, Anybody that honors you, I will honor him. Anyone who dishonors you, I will curse them. And Abram looks at the Pharaoh and says, this man may do me dishonor. He may do me harm. Let me figure out a way to fix it. Doesn't trust the Lord when he's faced with a severe problem here, right? Abram lied to Pharaoh about Sarah. Because he assumed the Egyptians would get... He doesn't even know that they're going to kill him. He just assumes that they will. Now, husbands, there's a lesson here. Well, there, there's quite a few, actually. Uh, but there's one in particular that if you're going to do really, something really horrible, at least you could do it under the guise and tell your wife, well, I'm only doing this because you're so beautiful that I, ha I don't have any other choice, right? I mean, he's not a stupid man. Uh, he, but then again, he is. He's the, that is the worst, most backwards husbanding I've ever seen. Husbands, what is your role? I mean, there's a lot of roles. But when it comes to danger coming to your family, are you supposed to step back and push your wife in front of you and say, I'm going to protect myself with my wife? Who should be answering the weird noises at 2 a.m. with the shotgun? Not your wife, right? You, the husband, is the one who's up scared thinking there's somebody breaking in the house. Abram shields himself with his wife, even though God had just promised him, I will curse anyone who dishonors you. Now, here's the craziest part about this story. God makes a promise. Abraham is unfaithful. Is God unfaithful? No. 
Abraham does not do what he was supposed to do. He does not believe in the promises of God. But God made a promise to him and said, anyone who dishonors you, even though it was Abram's fault, right? Even though he lied to Pharaoh and said, this is my sister. Really, when we look at the story, we say, Pharaoh has no blame. He didn't know. How could he possibly know? And yet God still brings, what, plagues into his house. Pharaoh dishonors Abram, and God upholds his end of the promise. Even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful every time. You see, when we read Paul say that Abram has faith, and that faith is counted to him as righteousness, it's not perfect faith. It's as flawed, or in some cases, more flawed, than you or I, because I bet you no husband in this room has ever tried to sell his wife to save himself. That's pretty bad. By the way, Abram does it again, right? Abraham does this again several chapters later. He doesn't even learn from his mistake. Like he, do- what is God? I mean, it's crazy. And so, God is faithful. Abraham believes God, not perfectly, not fully, and he has doubts and he has moments where he doesn't understand and he doesn't do what God calls him to do. But Abraham. Abram, he has faith. Let's look at another familiar story. If you're still back there, let's look at Genesis 15. So after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. For I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And this is the verse that Paul quotes, right? And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And so he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old and a ram three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, laid them each over against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the inquiry of the Amorites is not yet complete. Iniquity, sorry. 
When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, uh, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Okay, that's an interesting story. I know I've explained it here a few times because this is one of my favorite renditions of the gospel in the Old Testament. Um, at face value, it's the weirdest story we've ever heard, right? What in the world is going on? He's gathering these animals and we are cutting them in half, putting them in piles, and then falling into a sleep. What is going on? And this is how covenants were made. What they use, what, the word that is used in Hebrew is to cut a covenant. They would cut these animals in half. They would lay them in two piles. And what pe- this is what people would do. Like, if, if you and I, I'm going to buy some land from you, we would do this. You cut, a pi- cut these animals, put them in two piles. We would both walk between. And therefore, if we, if me or you, we broke our promises to one another, then we would be like the animals. Let us be cut in half. Let us be killed if we don't uphold our end of this bargain, this covenant. That's exactly what God is doing. But Abram does not walk between the pieces. God commands him to bring the animals. He cuts them in half. Abram is there watching. And who walks between? A smoking pot and a flaming sword. These are representation of who God is, right? All throughout the Old Testament, God is represented by smoke and fire. They come out of Egypt, right? They they come across the Red Sea. What do they follow? Smoke and fire. Right? This is God. God walks between the pieces and he says, I make a promise to you, and if I don't uphold my end, I will die. Abram, you do nothing. You don't have to walk between. There's nothing on your part. God says, let me do everything. And Abram believed him, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Turn the page. What's the next chapter about? Abraham and Haggai. So, wait, does he believe God or does he not? What's going on here? And see, here's the thing, is that Abraham's faith and our faith are the same. We, it's broken, it's flawed. You see, Abram looks at the problem in front of him and says, I still don't have any kids. And like, I don't know how many years it's been when he and Haggai, when Ishmael is born, but it's been a number of them, right? He came out of Ur at 75, so he's... 80, maybe he's in his 80s, maybe even up to 90 at this point. I'm not sure if it says, I don't remember. But he's older. He's older than 75. Now at 75, that's old enough to be like, I'm not having any more kids. This is not a thing that 75-year-olds do. And God promised him that at 75. And so he's older. By however many years, I don't know for sure, right? But he's older than 75. And God is saying, it's not going to be a member of your household. And Abram looks around and says, I don't understand how you're going to make this promise happen. Let me see if I can figure out a way to fix it myself. You see, his, Abraham's faith is mixed in with his own conniving and thinking and his own logic and his own way. And it's not as if this was uncommon, right? That's actually very common back in this day. If people were not able to have kids, men would take on multiple wives so that he could have an heir. That was the worldly way to do things. That was not the godly way to do things. And so Abram tries to find a way to fix it himself instead of waiting. And we even see later in Abram's life, right, when when Isaac and and Ishmael are both born and they're both there, 
And God says, I want you to sacrifice your, your son. And Abraham is like ready to grab Ishmael. And God says, nope, no, no, no. Your only son. That's what he says to him. Because Isaac was God's plan for Abraham. Even though he went outside of God's plan and tried to fix it himself. God says, no, no, that is your only son. That is the one that I promised you. Even though you goofed and even though you made a mistake and you did something wrong and your faith wavered and you thought you would fix it. God says, no. And so God, so Paul, we see this comparison, right? He is telling us here in Romans chapter 4 that Abram's faith is what brought about his righteousness. It's not his works. It's not your works. It's not mine. You see, if works was what got us into heaven, we could never, ever, ever do enough to earn it. It would be like me having a goal, like I want to make a billion dollars, and yet I'm just going to stay in my job as a chaplain working 20 hours a week. It doesn't matter how many extra shifts I pick up, I'm never making a billion dollars doing that, right? I can work as hard as I possibly can. I can work 80, 100 hours a week, but at my hourly wage, I will never be a billionaire no matter how hard I work. That goal cannot be achieved the way that I'm doing it. It's like you and I trying to work our way into heaven. It's not possible. So just like Abraham, whoever hears the promise from God and believes it, this is what verse 5 tells us in Romans chapter 4. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. This, verses 4 and 5, this is the difference between every other world religion and Christianity. Verse 4 describes every other religion on the planet. Right? What is verse 4? Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift. Not as a gift, but as his due. Everybody, every other religion says, if there is a heaven, I'm going to earn my way there. I'm going to do good deeds. I'm going to knock on doors. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to go mow these people's yard, whatever. Right? They come up with this massive list of things that they're going to do to earn their way into heaven. And Christianity stands alone in that we believe verse 5 and not verse 4. We will not try and work our way into heaven. The foundation of what it means to be a Christian is what we see in verse 5. That we can't earn it. Paul tells us that this belief in Abraham, right, this is what makes him righteous. And I think there is a temptation. I think it's a good question. Where does it come from? Where does the belief come from? Is it coming from God? Is it coming from within him? Who is, if the belief is coming from God, is he able to accept it or not? And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but I think there is a misconception of these ideas. When we talk about people who believe in elect versus free will or all of these different things, or if you want to use Calvinism and Arminianism, whatever you want to think, however you want to think about these things, um, that there is, Calvin and Arminius had very, 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 they were, they were very similar. There's only one thing in between those two. There's only, there's only one answer or question that they answer differently. And they said, because both, both men believe, yes, we are the depravity of sinners. Everyone is dead in their sin. Everybody is not able. Nobody is doing good. Nobody is seeking God. Nobody is doing these things. But there, there comes a day when God grants us, right? He wakes us up. He gives us insight. The only difference between those two beliefs is, do you have an ability to say no or not? 
Calvin said no, right? Irresistible grace. He says, you, everybody who God wakes up is going to believe without question. Arminius said, you have a choice. That, if, if you think that those two ideas are polar opposites, I, I got to tell you, I'm sorry that you're wrong. That they're not. That's it. That's the only difference. They both believe in depravity of, the, of, of depravity of man, that we are all completely broken and dead in our sin. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. Now, here's the thing. This question divides churches, and it shouldn't. Why shouldn't it? Because we, I, I do not know of a place in the Bible where we have a concise, clear answer to that question. There's nowhere in the Bible that I have ever read that says, you do not have a choice. When God wakes you up, it's done. Irresistible grace is the thing. That's, that's what I believe. I think that there are hints that point us to this. But we should not divide over things that the Bible is not absolutely clear about. Somebody comes through that door and says, yeah, faith is not the way that we are saved. Well, I was, I was raised in the Catholic Church and they taught me that by works I will be saved. That's a person we don't have fellowship with, right? They don't believe in the gospel. We can't work alongside them. But for these smaller issues, these things, how did Abraham believe? Did God give it to him and he wasn't able to make a choice? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell me. And so I'm not going to divide myself from people who may disagree about that. I, I read the Bible and I see hints that we don't have a choice, that grace is irresistible, but I don't know that that's true. And all I want to say is that I don't, this is something that is, that's happening here, right? There are people and there, there's division happening over this idea and I just I don't think it should. I think we should be able to come together and have good conversation. Right? We should be able to talk about these things as loving brothers and be like, hey, this is what I think. What do you think about this? And, what do you, and point scriptures to one another and say, I don't know, maybe this, maybe that. And dig deep into God's word so that we can try and find an answer. But the problem is, is that people have been arguing about this for a really long time. And there's never been like this, oh, finally somebody wrote a book that explains it all the way. It, I think that probably it's something that none of us are seeing. That I'm not seeing sort of on the Calvinist side and that somebody else is not seeing on the, the free will Arminian side. Right? There's, I, I'm 100% sure that when I get to heaven, it's going to be like, oh, there's this thing that I didn't even know was going on that God is doing in salvation. And I don't understand it and I didn't see it and I'm still totally happy. Now, there is an idea, once again, it's not to say that we never divide ourselves over theological issues. Because there is a di idea in this argument, and this is the thing that we should be fighting against. This is the thing that we would break fellowship with one another over, right? You, you probably heard those two names before. But the thing that really is, is heresy and that is bad within this discussion is Pelagianism. That's not one we talk about very often, right? You guys ever heard that one? Yeah? Pelagianism says, hey, look, there's good in everybody. You can seek God. You can do God. You can find him. And without God's help, you could make a choice to believe in him. That is antithetical to the Bible. The Bible is clear that we can't do that. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our sins. Romans 3, what we just read last week, right? No one does good. No one seeks after God. Without God enabling us to do that, we would never do anything good. We would never seek after him. Okay, we'll be done with that. So this faith that Paul talks about, this belief that Abraham has, where we don't necessarily know how it all works and how it all comes together... Who is it for? Paul answers this question for us, right, in verse 9. Is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Circumcised. You see, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, 
But before, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Who benefits? Everybody. The Jew and the Greek, the uncircumcised and the circumcised. It was circumcision, the mark of the covenant, was not a prerequisite to believe. It was a seal, it was a sign of the belief that Abraham had, of the faith that he had. You see, it's not about the sign of the covenant, it's not about the law, but the problem is people have made it about that. Churches have made it about that. I'm picking on the Catholics a lot this morning, but the Catholics have made it about that. You don't take communion, you're, lose, you're, you're, you're not right with God if you're not taking the covenants. That's not what the Bible says. We don't, we don't do this every week so that we can, we can, oh, I've been reabsolved of my sin because I've retaken, I've retaken the sacrament of, of communion. My brain went blank there for a second. That's not why we do it. It's not about, it's not what saves us. It's not what brings us back into right relationship with the Lord. We do these things as a sign and a seal of the faith that we have. This is how we understand baptism. How many of you got to be here last week? We, eight young folks were baptized in the river. We all know that that baptism didn't wash them of their sins. That river's dirty, right? There's nothing in it that cleansed anybody. Why do we do it? We do it because it's a sign of the faith that those young people had, that they have accepted Jesus. And so they're telling the world through baptism, it's symbolic of being washed and come back out as a new creation. The Bible loves symbolism. We have a hard time with it. If it doesn't, well, if it doesn't do anything, what's the point? Everybody just got really cold and wet. And what, what happened? Nothing physically happened. No sin was washed away. But yet, God takes symbolic actions very seriously. Look back one last time. Exodus 4. Exodus 4, verse 24. So Moses, he's got his wife, Zipporah, and his son, and he's going back to Egypt. And on the road, this happens. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let them alone. And it was then that he said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. You see, Moses had not circumcised his son. Now what did circumcision do? It didn't make a young Jewish man holy or righteous or any of those things. But God commanded it. As a sign of the covenant. It was symbolic. And Moses didn't do it. And God's not like, well, it's not big. It's fine. No, he meets Moses on the road. And I'm not sure who he's ready to kill. But he's ready to kill somebody. Right? It's a pronoun. It's either Moses for not doing it. Or Moses' son for not having it done. I'm not sure who. But God takes this very seriously. The symbolism of his covenants of our seal and sign of faith. Now, I don't think that God is going to start striking people dead who have not been baptized. 
But right here, we see that God takes these things seriously. It's not, well, I'll get around to it when I feel like it or when it's convenient. Baptism is a command of the, it seals us. It is a sign for the faith that we have. It is symbolic. The bread and the cup that we come forward every week, right? Picking on the Catholics again, right? But they, because they can't just say it's symbolic, they have to come up with a doctrine that's not in the Bible. Transubstantiation says somehow it actually transforms into God's body and to his blood. That is not biblical. It's not real. That's not happening, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but that's not what's going on at the table in front of us. We can't deal with things just being symbolic. Beauty for the sake of beauty. I mean, think about it. Have you ever been to Europe and seen some of these old cathedrals? And we walk through and we're like, man, that is beautiful. Like, look at all this stuff and it's so cool. But it's kind of a waste of money, right? God loves beauty for the sake of beauty. God doesn't see that as a waste of money. Go back and look at what God says to Solomon about how to build the temple. What does he say? Ah, just go find the cheapest stuff you can find. Splatter some paint on it wherever you feel like in whatever color you want. No, go find the most expensive wood that you can find. Build it ten times bigger than it needs to be so that when you walk in, you're in awe of God's glory and then cover most of it in gold. God cares about beauty. Beauty is good for just the sake of beauty. Symbolism is good. We should not be like, well, it's just, it doesn't do anything. It's just bread and it's just juice. That's true, but it's symbolic for the death and the resurrection of Jesus. See, circumcision doesn't save us. Faith saves us. But it is the sign, right? Baptism is the sign of our faith. It's not required, but it's important. So these promises to Abraham, they didn't come through the law. God promised Abraham many, many things. And none of them were tied to any law. None of them were tied to any sacrament or covenant other than God saying, I will do this. Right? That's what God says over and over again. I will do this for you. I will do this. There's a change in language. Just a little nugget here on the side. Over and over, before Abraham, God says to Adam and Eve, Go, be fruitful, and multiply. And then when Noah gets off the boat, what does he say? Same thing. Go, be fruitful, and multiply. And we come to Abraham, God changes his language, and he says, I will make you fruitful. I will multiply you. When God looks at Abraham, he says, all of these things, I'm going to do it for you. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is have faith. And so my question to you this morning is simple. Are you suffering under the weight of the law? Maybe your own law, maybe the law of our land that's ever-changing, that the target is ever-moving, trying to be in the right with all the people who... Where is it that you find your meaning? Where is it that you are fulfilled? If it's your law, if it's man's law, all it will do is weigh you down and break you. There is a far better law than anything any man has ever come up with, anything that you have ever come up with, anything that any government has ever come up with. You see, the good news is that God's law is perfect. And like we saw last week, God has manifested himself apart from that law in Christ 
Christ fulfilled that law perfectly. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and he resurrected. And then he said, you know what? I'm perfectly righteous and I'm willing to give that righteousness to you. This is what God is saying right through Jesus that anybody who repents and believes they can be righteous if they have faith in Jesus. You see, we are justified and we are made holy through the promises of God. Not through a sacrament, not through any belief, I mean, not through any work, but, be, but through our belief and our faith in God. And so my question to you is, do you believe that? Is your faith resting in Jesus Christ and the promises of God alone? If they are resting anywhere else, I implore you, repent, ask God to forgive you, and he will. He loves you. He wants, he wants to see you believe in his promises and stop being under the weight of your law or someone else's law. Stop that. It's nonsense. It gets you nowhere. Your works will not save you. And God is ready and he is willing to forgive. But he calls you to repentance, to believe in his promises. That's my call for you this morning. Repent and believe. If you are already believing, believe deeper. Ask the Lord to give you more faith. Because we're like Abraham. You see, when problems come into our life, we say, God made a promise, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out a way to fix it. Believe in God. Trust in Him. Don't go your own route, but wait for the Lord to act. He will do mighty things in your life if you are willing to be patient and let Him. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for... What we see here and what we see about Abraham and that the father of Israel was not a perfect man. His faith was not perfect, and yet he is declared righteous because of his belief. Lord, we operate under the same rules that we're bad. Our faith is broken and it's weak, and yet you declare us righteous and you declare us justified because of the faith that we have that you have given to us. And so, Lord, we come before you. So grateful that it's not up to us. There's nothing that we have to do, but that, Lord, you, you give it to us. Lord, you are doing all the things just like you did with Abraham. You have made us into the people that we are today, and we are so grateful for that. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for the salvation and the righteousness and the justification that comes through him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So then what we have represented before us um, is symbolic, right? It's, it's, uh, it, it represents the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. So that when we come to the table, we can remember, we can be reminded of the fact that Jesus died on the cross. That it wasn't just that God swept our sins under the rug or he said, ah, not a big deal. I'm going to put aside my justice so that you can have mercy and grace. But that God's justice was fully realized when he poured his wrath on Jesus. And that we are the, benefic the benefactors of that. That we have salvation, that we have forgiveness, that we have righteousness and justification because of the work of christ so god is inviting you if you believe in jesus if your faith is in him it's not in the law it's not in anything else but if it's in jesus he's inviting you to come he wants you to come it's a family meal he wants you to come grab a, a piece of bread and a cup and we'll take partake together we'll give thanks here in a moment but if that's not you if you're here this morning you're saying no my faith is not in christ my faith is in the law, my faith is in doing good works, is in trying to be a good person, and I think that's going to be the thing to save me. Don't come to the table.
but repent. Come to the altar, kneel where you are. I, I implore you again, repent of your sins. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. Only Christ can bring that to you. Please kneel where you are. Ask for forgiveness. God is, is faithful to forgive anyone who repents and anyone who asks. So the table is ready. Those who are trusting in Christ, please come forward.